pursuing the truth, living in love. Veritas is a grassroots network of Catholic young adults growing together in Christ. For more information or to see a schedule of Veritas events, visit catholicveritas.com. That's catholicveritas.com. today's podcast, we are featuring a Monk's Cellar event with Veritas co-founder John Johnson. John holds degrees from St. Mary's College and the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, and served at the parish level as Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministry for over a decade. He is now the Associate Director of the Avila Institute. In this episode, John discusses discernment paralysis as being an epidemic among even the most faithful of Catholic young adults. But by getting to the heart of what obstructs our discernment and discovering the church's simple, practical wisdom on the question of vocation, we can all be set free. Let's tune in. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, Son of Mary, we beg you to be with us tonight. Unite us in the simplicity of your love. Teach us who we are, Lord. Teach us who you are. We ask your blessing upon us. We ask the Holy Spirit's company that our ears might be open to your word. And most importantly, we entrust all of our work tonight, all of our hearts, all of our vocations to the immaculate heart of your most pure mother, Our Lady. So we pray together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Joseph, St. Agnes, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. So thank you for uh, being here. It's great to see everybody, and uh, it's great to be here tonight uh, speaking. It was a happy coincidence because um, I was shooting for a better speaker. Actually, two of them, they both fell through, so it was kind of the 11th hour, and it wouldn't have been just for me to ask anybody else to try to do this in a few days' notice. So um, that's why I'm here. And it's also something I think is kind of a needed topic to discuss. Uh, that said, I didn't have much time to prepare for this, so if it's terrible, I apologize and be sure to come back next month anyway. Hopefully Hezekiah will be here next month, I hope. Yeah, he's great. And finally, uh, this is like the 10-year anniversary, I did the math, the 10-year anniversary of this particular event happening, albeit in different locations. So it's, uh, it's been a good ride so far. And a lot of marriages, even mine. Uh, I met my wife in this group, believe it or not. Uh, even vocations. And, and so I think that's something that uh, is, is just is good. It's good, especially with the whole tree and fruit. There's good fruit uh, happening that has very little to do with uh, any any personality and very much to do with God who's raising us up. So let's talk about vocations. How many of you know your vocation? Cool. My promise to you tonight is that everybody, 100% without a shadow of a doubt, will be sure of your vocation before you leave. 
And I can say that is completely true in one particular sense, that everybody in this room shares a vocation. Everybody has a principal vocation, and then what we might call a secondary vocation, but really it's an ancillary vocation. That is, the principal vocation is what? Everybody knows this? Holiness. You all have the principal vocation to be holy, to be a saint, to know God, and ultimately to know Him fully, and fully in love, and fully in joy, in the beatific vision. But then the church speaks of this other sort of vocation, and this is what we would call a particular vocation. And there's a lot of controversy, you know, and not so much controversy, you know, uh, that's cantankerous or anything like that, but, you know, is the married life a vocation? Okay, this is a question, right? Because we don't have any example of Jesus calling somebody to married life in the gospel, right? So traditionally, the church has understand has understood vocation, vocari, to be a calling out of the world toward something else, which we'll talk about. I, I grant that, and I understand that many people might have that opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. But for the sake of our conversation tonight, we are going to speak of vocation to the married life and vocation to the religious life. And I will distinguish the way in which those things uh, are vocations, because there is a difference. But we're, we're going to work with that understanding, that it's possible to be called to the married life. Okay? John Paul II says that love is the fundamental innate vocation of every human being. Love is the fundamental innate vocation of every human being. And this is speaking of the capital V, big V, vocation to holiness that everybody shares. So I want to talk about that tonight, and then I want to get into some practical issues that boil down to why most of you are still single. Okay? That's the point. Okay, so number one, if love fundamentally is the innate vocation of every human person, everybody in this room has the same vocation to love, right? Then we have to get to the root of what is keeping us from loving most fully. Because ultimately that secondary vocation, your vocation to be married, to be religious, to be a nun, whatever, is nothing but that which, that through which you will love the best. That through which God is calling you to love in a way that you, you alone can love the best. So why are we cultured? This is a cultural problem, right? This is a generational problem. Is this problem of waiting. Naomi posted something on the Facebook uh, this Harvard graduate giving a valedictorian speech. Definitely the best valedictorian speech I've ever heard, because there was at least one thing worth hearing in it. And, and he says basically, our generation is a generation that is paralyzed by too many options. And so we're the generation that we're going to put ourselves to bed. We would rather put ourselves to bed scrolling through Netflix to find the perfect thing to watch rather than just watch one thing. And what happens is, well, we never end up watching anything. We just keep going through our options. St. Thomas actually said the same thing. And much of what we do tonight will be based on the work of St. Thomas Aquinas. But he says, uh, in, in the perfection of the spiritual life is the work, I quote, he says, it is manifest that the human heart 
is given over more intensely to one thing to the extent that it is withdrawn from a multiplicity of things. Read that again. The human heart is given over to one thing, that is, the human heart is able to love one thing, only to the extent that it is withdrawn from the multiplicity of things. Our generation is paralyzed by almost limitless multiplicity. And for that reason, we are unable to accept vocation. Because a vocation, you all know, is the Latin word vocare to call. But every call would be incomplete without a response. And our generation is lacking the ability to make a response precisely because we're lacking the ability to decide. And I mean that word, the word very, very literally, decidere, decide, homicide, pesticide, suicide. What's the common etymological denominator? Killing, death. And we are so terrified of killing off other things and saying yes to one thing that we are never able to say yes to anything because we're afraid of losing options. Okay, we've got to figure out how to address this. And ultimately, I believe this is not a existential problem. Like, our generation will find a way to reproduce <laughs> in spite of this. And really, uh, why do I say that? Because this very lack of uh, willingness to decide on one thing and one thing alone is an echo of the doctor of the church, St. Therese of Lisieux. And she's discerning her, her vocation. And I said, what do you want to do? She says, I want everything. I want everything. I want, I want it all. And so that sort of un, uh, un, lack of willingness to cut other things off can ultimately be um, the, the propulsion to say yes to God in a very full and complete way. Which is why that very attitude for... Uh, the, the attitude against making decisions or deciding on one option or another might very well be indicative of a, um, an increase uh, in religious life, vocations to religious life among us, God willing. So first let's talk about love because love is a big problem. We don't know how to love. We don't even really know what love is. What is love? Does it mean know the theological definition of love? Yeah. To will the good, of the other. good, that's great. To will the good of the other. Everybody understand that? Yeah. So, um, if I say to you, Tom Scary, Tom Scary, I will your good. I will it completely. I will it undyingly. I will it inexhaustibly. And I will die for your good. That's a nice way of saying what? I love you. I love you right? Now, when Tom Scary hears that, he can respond in one of two ways. I can probably think of a few more, but... <laughs> what, what do you have? What, what are your options? I love you too, man. Right. You love me too, but what is he saying with I love you too? Um, I'm going to give you a very technical definition of love that is not going to make much sense, but I think it's very helpful for this conversation. To love, love, let's just say love, not even to love, but love, the noun, is the dynamic receptivity inherent in being. 
the dynamic receptivity inherent in being. In other words, when Jesus explains love to us, what does he say? He says things like, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you try to save it, you'll... Wait, what does he say? If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. From Yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Or he says things like, uh, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When Jesus says something like that, that is the, the secret to existence is gift, basically. Is he giving you a new commandment? Is he giving you a new evangelical counsel? No, he's just telling you the way things are. There's the very mystery of being and being to the full, even in the level of wheat, is gift. Is gift. But gift would be nothing just like vocation. The call would be nothing without a response. Gift would be nothing without acceptance. So we could say, just as to love is to will the good of the other, we could say, and St. Thomas says this, love is acceptance. Because God is three. St. John says God is love, but God is also three. And if we're going to speak of God as love, then to will the good of the other is attributable principally to one of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity, more than the other two. Okay? So, it, I don't want to get lost here, but to will the good of the other, would you attribute that to the Father, to the Son, or to the Holy Spirit? And I understand, all three, for sure, don't get me wrong, all three, for sure, will the good of the other. But would you attribute this mostly to Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? That is, he who wills the good of the other. Father. What do you say? Father. Son, son, son. Okay, good. This is interesting. Whenever I ask this question, people say, son. That's mostly the answer you get right off the bat. Raise your hand if you have young kids or a young kid. Okay. This is your kid. What is his name? Okay. Does Michael will your good? Right? If you have a little kid, they ask yourself, does this person will my good? You know, or would they, like St. Augustine says, would they kill me if they were strong enough when I take away their ice cream? Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. See? Okay, so really, to will the good of the other is proper to the Father. Of course, it's proper to all three, but we could say especially analogous to the Father. To be a Father is to will the good of the other, even knowing that your good might not be willed back. And in this we have, remember, love is the dynamic receptivity. In this we have the dynamism which we could make draw analogy to the husband, which we could draw analogy to the man. The one who goes out of himself to make life. And who does the Father love for all eternity, completely and fully? He loves the Son. And we need to be very careful. We don't want to in any way, in any way, feminize the Son, especially in his incarnate nature, 
But there is an analogy at work where the son is the recipient of the father's love. And in this mirrors uh, the, the feminine. Okay? He's a receiver of the father's love. We, we need to be very, very careful with that analogy. But it's helpful in this sense. Because if to will the good of the other is the dynamic aspect of love, then what is that filial aspect of love? What is that receptive aspect of love? How can we characterize it? What did you say? Yeah, openness. And also, trust. Total trust. Total trust. You see, there's a certain silence on the room when I even say that. Because that is where we have been broken. That is where we have been ruptured. If you think about your own lives, it is much, much easier for you to totally will the good of the other than it is for you to totally trust that your good is willed. You see? It's almost impossible for you to just totally trust that your good is willed. At least it's a lot harder than to will the good of the other. And why is it so difficult to trust that your good is totally willed, even in a human relationship? Why? Yes, sin. But even more than sin, right? Because we could characterize sin as our failure to, to will the good of the other. But when we're speaking about trust, and that trust being ruptured, it's very, very important to understand that that is not our fault. That that rupture occurs even before we have a chance to love dynamically. This is as old as Eve's sin in the garden, Adam's sin in the garden. Before Eve sinned, what happened? She was deceived. And the deception was something like this. Did God really? Does God really will your good? Does God really love you by putting you here and telling you not to do this? What's he keeping from you? So a splinter in her mind, this rupture of trust, before she even eats an apple, before she gives it to Adam, something in her mind says, my good might not be willed. You see? And then that has an expression, a dynamic expression that she sends. Okay? And each of us, similarly, we mirror that experience. Actually, historically, we mirror it completely because in every, per every person here, at some point in your life, in the very beginning, everything was perfect. You see? Right? Even if it was just a little, little in utero, little Chris Muller swimming around, right? In the beautiful darkness of the womb. It was perfect. And maybe when you were born, everything was perfect. All of your needs were taken care of. This guy probably understands right now that his good is totally willed. Right? Nothing has ruptured that trust. It's a trust of a little child. And at some point, in each of our lives, somebody who was not God, but somebody who reflected God to you, hurt you. Right? Raise your hand if you've been hurt. Right? And that hurt, I've been hurt, that hurt, just like Eve was deceived, it deceives us into believing this fundamental lie. And the fundamental lie is what? I am not loved. I am not loved. 
And because I am not alone, I'm going to veil myself from everybody. I'm going to wear clothes. That's why we wear clothes. Even it's warm outside. Be much more comfortable if you're all naked, right? Physically. But we're hiding something. And why are we hiding something? Because we're vulnerable. And why are, we, why are we vulnerable? Because we know that we've been hurt. And if we've been hurt by somebody, even somebody that's close to us, anybody can hurt us. So we cover ourselves up. And we cover ourselves up ultimately from God. We say, I'm not loved. And this is a lie. And only after that do we hurt other people. Because we're so afraid of being hurt. It's like a trope we say all the time. Hurt people hurt people. That's absolutely true. You only hurt uh, insofar as you've been hurt. In order to restore this unity of love, dynamic receptivity, which is really a very simple and beautiful thing, you have to diagnose because ultimately this is keeping you from your vocation. I remember I was a child of divorce, and for that reason it was very, very difficult because I had this image of mother and father separating. Even though as a little kid, you think that's impossible. My parents will never divorce. These are my parents. And they do, but it's earth shattering. Anybody who is a child of divorce understands this well. And that terrifies you of getting married because that's all you know, and that's what you don't want to repeat, but you're afraid you might be doomed to repeat it. But what is that? You have to get to, and it's different for everybody. And it's not, you know, there are some people that have some tragic, tragic first ruptures, the tragic first wound. And it might even be benign for some of you, like not, you know, some people have been, I don't want to mention things, molested, uh, hurt in ways that I can't fathom. But it might also be something less harmful. But still, there was a rupture. Okay, and that rupture, like a splinter in your mind, tricked you into this lie that you were not loved. Okay? So if you want to get to your vocation, whatever it is, you're going to have to go through that. Okay? And here, it might sound like bad news, right? Like, oh shoot, i got to go through that. The only reason God allowed Adam and Eve to fall, the only reason God allowed, allowed us to be hurt, is the same reason that any evil is allowed in the universe. And that is to bring about a greater good. And so the greater good in this case, really, that is the, mo the, the, the cause of your harm can be the cause of your glory if unified to his cross, okay? So it's not all is lost, but hang on to that because that first wound is the major roadblock to the universal holiness vocation, big V vocation, and then the small vocation also. Love, when complete, because there's a third person of the Blessed Trinity, obviously, that I didn't mention, but when the Father wills the good of the Son, and when the Son totally trusts that His good is willed, which is all, all that God does, there's this third thing. I won't say new, because it's co-eternal, it's the Holy Spirit. In us, when we love and completely trust that we are loved, there's always fruit. There's always fruits. Aquinas identifies this fruit. There's uh, ecstasy, zeal, mutual indwelling, peace. Okay? In a family, this is analogous to what? To children. Okay? 
It is impossible, this is a huge mistake when it comes to love, it is impossible to love in the abstract. It is impossible to love in the abstract. When you hear somebody tell you, I love humanity, they are lying. When you hear Judas say, could this not have been sold and given to the poor? While he was standing in Bethany, which means town of the poor, and while poor people were anointing Jesus right in front of him and adoring him, and Judas contrives this abstract love for the poor. I love all of humanity, but this jerk right next to me, not you, but you know, you see? And this is a problem for us vocationally. Why? Because we attempt to abstract our vocation. You will never fall in love for that same reason. You will never fall in love with religious life. You will never fall in love with womankind. You see? You will fall in love with this woman or with this religious order. Okay? And to the extent that we are trying to fall in love with an abstract, you are setting yourself up for failure. You know in the abstract, but you love the particular. With every decision to love or with every call to love, it's the case that the answer must be present before the call is present. Now, what do I mean by that? Your vocation is never going to be clear to you until your answer is yes. Why? Because yes is that receptivity. Yes is the acceptance of whatever it might be. Vocation is fundamentally a response to God's will for your life. And so your answer has to be yes. Um, to speak of this yes, we have to be able to say yes. You see, when you're asked when you're married, do you come here freely? You have to be able to answer that question honestly. And if you're not free to love, that is, if you haven't addressed that first wound, that first rupture, and healed from it, you will never be free to make that yes. And your marriage will be, uh, you know, one of these annulment cases, right? It's very sad, but it happens all the time. The best advice I ever got when I was discerning marriage uh, is my, my, it was Father McNeely, actually. And he says, John, the two halves do not become one. It's like, it's not one and half, it's not one half plus one half equals one. It's the two become one flesh. And so there's a, there's a sense in which if we're not whole, we're not going to be able to give ourselves. And that doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean we have to be in, you know, in the, uh, the mystical union, uh, you know, Christian perfection, levitating our way out of bed. Doesn't mean that at all. But it means we have to be whole enough to give ourselves. Um, let's get into some of the particulars and we'll work our way back. Because I think, as we said, the abstract is a little bit hard to grasp. Vocation is a choice between two things. Now we're talking about little vocation, your particular vocation. And some people think, oh, I can either choose to be married or a priest. 
no, fundamentally the choice for everybody is between a life of the evangelical councils or the commandments. The councils or the commandments. And really that boils down to lay or religious, usually. But God can call married people to the councils in marriage. We'll talk about that. What are the councils? Does anybody know what the evangelical councils are? Yeah. Poverty, chastity. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. So St. John, uh, in his first letter, identifies these three things that are keeping us from healing from that first rupture. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. And Christ answers these things by giving us these three ways of perfection. Uh, lust of the eyes is answered by poverty. Lust of the flesh is answered by chastity, and pride of life is answered by obedience. And these three things, uh, if we do them, they'll make us perfect. If we do them right, okay? And in heaven, this is we all live the life of the councils, okay? So we're all sort of on the on the way to religious life, hopefully, in heaven. Uh, the commandments, you know, what the commandments are there's ten of them, and fundamentally, the commandments boil down to love. But really, if you're going to be called to the married life, this is a life of the commandments. If you're going to be called to religious life, this is a life of the councils. St. John Paul II uh, will speak first of how one is called to a life in the councils. There's a lot of misconceptions about how we're called to religious life. First of all, I'll tell you this. This is the most important thing about religious life that you hear tonight. Just remember this. There is almost never a bad reason to enter religious life. Okay? And by almost, I mean if justice prevents it, so Scott, it would be sinful for you to enter religious life right now. So you have a vow to Stephanie. Okay? Or if you are physically incapable, you know, an invalid or something like this, or if justice prevents you if you have like mountains of student debt, okay? Or if if you bailing and going to religious life would, you know, put your, you know, your brother who's co-signed on your student loan, you know, ruin his life, then you don't do it. Other than that, St. Thomas is very clear, and this is something we don't often talk about. There's no bad reason to pursue the evangelical counsels. Aquinas goes so far as to say, even if the devil himself appears to you as an angel of light and convinces you to enter a monastery you should still do it. Strong, right? And why? There's two reasons, because one, the object, the immediate object of the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, obedience, is God himself and Christian perfection. It's a lot like saying there's no bad reason to love. There's no bad reason to contain charity and express charity. There's no bad reason to be prudent. There's no bad reason, almost, to enter religious life. Number two, and this is very, you know, I found it very liberating when I heard this and when I was discerning. When you enter religious life with your heart fully and physically go, the burden of discernment falls upon who? Your superior. And that's very freeing. When I was discerning, you know, and a lot of this talk is anecdotal because, you know, in some respects I discern very rightly and in some respects I discern very wrongly. You know, 
like it was a bumpy road for me. There's a lot of what I did. There's a lot that I would have done differently. But one thing I did do is I went to Norcia, Italy, and I lived with the monks. And for my intentions, they were terrible uh, because I'm like, well, what is the most the most hardcore vocation a man could possibly live in the most glorious, the most difficult, the most heroic. It is hardcore monasticism. And what is the biggest, best, baddest monastery? I'm, you know, Vina? No way, Vina. I'm going to Norcia, where St. Benedict was born. And so I showed up, you know, and I said, I said, here I am, John Johnson. You've been waiting for me, I'm sure. Right? And I'm ready to be a monk. It is time, you know. My time has come. And of course, you know, three weeks into this uh, discernment experience, you know, the monk, the, the vocation director, now he's the, he's the prior. But I remember we were walking on spiritual directions, like, he's like, he laughed out loud. He's like, John, are you kidding? You're not going to be a monk. <laughs> He's like, go get married. Go get married. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, probably stung a little bit, but really more than that, it was so free. I was like, give me my heart to it. I was ready to do it. And, and he's like, go get married. I'm like, okay. Okay. Same thing. When I went back, my spiritual director says to me, uh, quote, you can do whatever you want. Now that's not great advice uh, in all circumstances, but in this particular case, it was very helpful to me. A vocation is always freely given and freely accepted. And, and, and the highest level of freedom is reserved for the acceptance of a vocation. And that is you can deny one flat out if it's made evident to you through any means. You could flat out deny it and say, no, thank you, God, without so much as the penalty of venial sin. When the angel showed up in Mary's bedroom and asked her to give, uh, to conceive the word incarnate, this is particularly vocational. And God and all the angels that surrounded her in anticipation respected her dignity enough that she could have very well said no thank you without so much losing any of her incorruptibility without so much committing the slightest venial sin your vocation is accepted and asked that freely that freely and if it's not you have annulment grounds if it's not you don't have a vocation and so much of what the church is swimming in right now is what Married people who are married, that try to be married, and are not called to be married. Religious or priests who do not have a vocation. Or they had one at some point, and then they sort of, they're faking it to make it now. They've lost the faith. Because with the vocation, whatever yours is, there's what's called grace of state. Have you ever heard of grace of state? Grace of state is basically a particular kind of grace that God will supply to you through your uh, through your vocation, whatever it is, whether it's marriage or religious life. So we'll talk about that, um, but I want to walk through how John Paul II describes, before we talk about marriage and dating, all fun stuff. How do you know if you have a religious vocation? 
John Paul II gives basically four motions of, of God working in the, in the life of somebody who might be called religious. But then pay attention to our possible responses. Number one, this is important, God provokes an interest. God provokes an interest. It's very simple. Now, if God gives you an interest to religious life, how can you respond to that? Most of us are so easily distracted that we just find interest in other things very quickly. Okay, poof, vocation, you know, uh, rejected. Remember this when we talk about vocation rejecting. Of course, God is a God, you know, that can catch you after you made a wrong turn. That's all he does. God saves us after we make wrong turns. That said, a vocation delayed, when I'm talking about vocation to the religious life, or even a vocation to marry a certain person, a vocation delayed is often a vocation lost. How many men have vocations to the priesthood or religious life, but because of practical impediments, have to wait, and then the vines of the world creep up their legs, and then the vines become chains? How many young women waiting to enter a convent, the vines creep up, the vines become chains? You need to understand the power of habit, and right now, you're on the cusp of your flexibility, habitually. Your parents, you notice, they don't change anything. We're all creatures of habit. Aristotle says that um, habit is like throwing a stone, and in youth, you're winding up, you're winding up, but then like about the time of being like 30, 35, the stone leaves your hand. But everything that you've done before that time indicates the direction of the stone. And there's a certain point, because of the power of habit, that that stone is gonna leave your hand, and you're not gonna have any control over where it goes. So make good use of your, uh, of your flexibility while you have it. Make good use of your spiritual flexibility while you have it. So number one, God provokes an interest. What are you going to do with it? Number two, John Paul II says, God calls us by name. God calls us by name. Meanwhile, the world, the flesh, and the devil are also calling us by name, tantalizing us in various ways. Number three, and this is an important one, God reveals to us the practical way. Once God has conjured your interest, and once God has called you by name, if you have a religious vocation, God will reveal to you the practical means. Okay. And at this point, your decisive energies should kick in. You should be visiting religious orders. You should be trying to pay off your debt. And to the extent that you are doing these things, God will be, God's will will become clear to you. And God has plenty of money. If your yes were total, but you had $100,000 in student debt, you could very easily walk out the door and there would be the duffel bag with Benjamins. That's easy for God to do. Easy. Okay? So God is faithful. God is 100% faithful. And if the interest has been moved, if you have been called by name, then we start to get into the practical. 
And when it comes to the practical, God will not disappoint. Number four, and this is after many, many trials, after many, many doubts, God will assure you, I am with you. Do you want to sit down? Are you going to stay there? Okay. God will assure you, I am with you. Okay? So, I don't want to spend very much time on religious life. Uh, other than, if, if you've never tried it and you're single, there's no bad reason to do it. I'll just say that. There's no bad reason to actually just ask, you know, is there an interest? Do I have an interest? Has God called me? Because um, once you enter, the burden of discernment is on your superiors. And so if there's no reason not to, you should. I'll say that. Uh, and especially practically, marriage is not something you can try. Right? <laughs> religious life is. You can try religious life. And you either get invited to stay or not. Marriage is not something you can try. Okay. Moving on to discerning marriage. And yes, we can call marriage a vocation for our purposes tonight. Most of us, if we're using that sense of the word vocation, most of us are called to marriage. And that's because it's natural. Okay. First way that people screw up discerning married life. Are you ready? I'm going to offend some of you with, with this. There's no such thing as a committed relationship prior to engagement. There is no such thing prior to a committed relationship. I'm sorry, there's no such thing as a committed relationship prior to engagement. Just like there's no such thing as religious life with any sort of commitment prior to vows, there's no such thing as a committed relationship of any kind prior to engagement. And if you tell me that, if you come to me and say, you know, hey John, meet my, my babe. You know, we're in a committed relationship. I say, oh, what does that mean? Right? What does that mean? Because if you're, you know, is anybody in any seminary, Ryan will tell you, if you're discerning, you know, and you're entering seminary or you're a postulant, and the vocations director and the discerner and the postulant decide, you know what, this isn't working out. What does the vocations director say? It was great. Well, I'm glad you found your way. You know, it might sting a little, okay? But you just go your way, and that's better for everybody. When you're in a committed relationship, and that ends prior to engagement, what happens nine times out of ten? Your heart's broken. Somebody's heart's broken, okay? So I, as much as it, it was a point in my life when I really couldn't stand this term emotional chastity, but there's a lot of wisdom in this. Because just like you wouldn't give your body, uh, or at least you shouldn't give your body uh, prior to marriage, the heart is the same thing. The heart is the same way. You do not want to give your heart uh, to anybody but your spouse. It's as simple as that. And to the extent that you do give your heart or your body to anybody who isn't your spouse, then they will come when you have a spouse and you'll have to give an account for that one way or the other. Okay? And so preserving yourself whole and entire for marriage is, is key, even in the heart, especially in the heart, I would say, especially in the heart. Okay, now how does that work? 
there is a difference between prudentially deciding not to date more than one person at a time and being in a committed relationship. Because like in our parents' and our grandparents' day, you know, you went out to the movies with Sally on Monday, and then you went out to the drive-in with, I don't know, Patty on Tuesday. I think it's somebody I don't know. Uh, okay, you know, and that's kind of the way it was done. And now, you know, I get, I get it. There is like you're dating somebody, and if you were to date somebody else, that would be some sort of offense to the heart. But we have to be very, very careful about that. Um, because really this sort of false commitment uh, inhibits freedom. And any inhibition of freedom nullifies marriage. You see? Number two, pay very close attention to the beatitude. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Uh, fornication outside of marriage isn't just wrong because, you know, I mean, many, many consequences. I don't have to name the consequences. But principally, the consequence of any lack of purity is a lack in sight. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. When you're discerning a vocation, you need clarity of sight. And to the extent that you lack purity, you will lack clarity. It's a very simple equation. Okay, so at all costs, physically you have to avoid the near occasion of sin. That goes without saying. And I don't spend too much time talking about it. Uh, and great advice that I got when I was discerning to be deliberately and unnecessarily in the, in the near occasion of sin is itself a mortal sin. To be deliberately and unnecessarily in the occasion of mortal sin, in the near occasion of mortal sin, is itself a mortal sin. Now, you'd be very careful with that because everything is the occasion of sin, right? I'm in it, I'm in it right now, but I'm in it necessarily. Okay. We don't have to spend more time on that. If anybody has any questions, it'd be very helpful if you just raise your hand and we'll talk about it. Number three, this is one you're not going to hear anywhere else. Maybe you'll hear it somewhere else, but I'm going to say it differently. Contraception absolutely kills love. And not only do I mean that use of contraception for sexual reasons outside of marriage, that goes without saying but there's all kinds of new science coming out right now. If, um, if you ever heard the name Vicki Thorne, who founded Project Rachel. What contraception does to, chemical contraception does to a woman's body and her pheromone receptors is it makes her physically attracted to men that she should not be genetically attracted to. Basically men with different amounts of testosterone that her body would naturally be attracted to. And for this reason, a woman is also being attracted to men with incompatible immune systems. But most importantly, what happens? You're on chemical birth control, you're dating, you're married, you get married, you're married for four years, the honeymoon's over, and you say, I don't have a kid now. The woman goes off chemical birth control, and guess what? She wakes up next to a man she's not attracted to, chemically, divorce. Okay? So, and I'm not a scientist, I'm not a medical doctor. This is secondhand stuff that I've read and heard, but it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And you can really trace the rise of contraception to the rise of a lot of things, even more than divorce. 
so avoid it. Oh, but I'm not, you know, regulating my periods. Oh, but I have acne. Avoid it. Okay? Avoid it. Do something else. You know, easier for me to say, I guess, and you know, get mad at me if you want, but. Um, number four, this is a very important one for men. Uh, quote, great Walter White, a man provides. So you come to me and say, hey John, you know, it's going really well. Been dating Sally. I go, oh, that's great. You're like, yeah. Got this great job at Del Taco. They're giving me four hours a week, you know, free bean burrito during my shift. Okay, there's a problem. Why is there a problem? Because you're not practically able to provide for a family. And in California, you know, your four hours a week at Del Taco is not going to cut it. So if you're a man, you have no business dating or courting until you can provide for a family. Let's say that. Or until at least your ability to provide for a family is within your grasp, close to you. Because what are you doing? It's a grave injustice to waste a woman's time, even more so than for her to waste your time. And if you can't provide for a family, you're kidding yourself, especially in California. It's not easy. <laughs> Anybody doing it will tell you it's not easy to provide for a family. Okay. So a practical consideration is, is huge because that's an impediment to marriage if you don't have a job. Okay? Number five. This is a top ten list, in case you're wondering. Number five. There is never a good reason, or at least almost never a good reason, to date any one person for more than a year. You will learn everything you need to know about a person as far as whether or not you can marry them within a year. If you're not dating with the end of marriage, you're just wasting each other's time. And it's gravely unjust. When I did high school ministry, and people come and say, hey, we're dating. Sophomores in high school. First question, when can you get married? I was, oh, that's great. Can you be married in two years? You're dating, and I would actually sit down with them and do the math. Okay, you're sophomores now. So you date your whole junior year. Let's say you pop the question, first day of senior year, you can get married out of high school. Yeah, let's do it. Right? And they would go, oh, uh, right? Maybe not. Okay? There is nothing you're going to learn about a person after a year of dating that's going to tell you whether or not they can be married to you. What's going to happen instead, if you want to date for longer than a year, is that you're just going to get accustomed to each other, and you're going to begin to use each other, either for each other's company, or for each other's intimacy, or for each other's bodies. And you're going to lie to yourself, I can't live without this person, they can't live without me, but you're not going to be willing to commit. If you're in that situation as a woman, and it's been more than a year, and you don't have a ring, just go away. Go away. There's a lot of good dudes. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of saints. There's a lot of saints in this room. I don't say that lightly. Uh, so you don't have to settle. Number six. Forgetting this is the impediments to marriage. Ways to do it wrong. Forgetting that marriage is natural and can, can boil down to, and in some respects should boil down to practical decisions. 
too often, we want to wait for the sign. And especially with ma marriage, is not how it works. With religious life, you can actually wait for the sign. If nothing else, then your superior is yes or no. With married life, you're going to have to do the late work because it's natural. That is, you're going to have to decide. Can this, will this person be a good mother to my kids? What does this person's mother look like? What is she going to look like when she's older? Am I attracted to her? Am I attracted to him? Does he make me laugh? Can we have good conversation? Do we get bored of each other? You know, uh, Sirach, the book of Sirach. Uh, <laughs> I got in trouble for posting this on Facebook. But I find it very beautiful. Sirach's giving wisdom to this man discerning marriage. And he says, choose a woman who is quiet of the tongue and strong of the ankle. There's wisdom to that. But you do have to make practical considerations. It's actually very important for both men and for women. And you're not going to find the one. No, anybody who's married, you know, you, okay, I get it. You found the one. But it's not like the skies parted and opened up. You made a good decision. And God confirmed that good decision with grace, abundantly. Grace perfects nature. Okay, gratia presupponent naturum, and marriage is natural. Principally, marriage is natural. It's a natural vocation, which can boil down to a natural decision. There's nothing wrong with that. If the sky's part for you, that's great. Put a ring on it. But most of the time, it's going to boil down to a natural decision, and don't be afraid of that. Number seven, what I call clipboarding. Women are usually guilty of this. You have an image in mind of your ideal spouse, and you have a clipboard. And every man you meet either you know, checks a box or doesn't check a box. And usually the man doesn't get a shot, you know, he doesn't get out of the gate. It's a no, right? Because this man doesn't meet your ideal man version. I can tell you, um, when my wife first met me, she didn't like me very much. <laughs> At all, you know, most of you understand that. I was an acquired taste. So, ladies, your husband might very well be an acquired taste. And here's the thing about the clipboard. You can throw it away because God is always going to give you a much more magnificent spouse than you could have drawn up for yourself. God is always going to give you something more beautiful than you could have ever imagined. So there's no point in imagining it. There's no point in, and this goes even when you're dating. You know, emotional chastity, again, stop naming your kids. Just stop doing that. You know, there'll be a time for that when you have the kids. So, so don't build castles. Because what God can build is going to be better than any of your wildest castles. Number eight, and this is not a problem for everybody, but it's a problem for some people. Too much introspection. When you go to a concert, and it's an amazing concert, amazing rock concert, and you're into the music, what's the worst thing you can do to ruin that experience? Start thinking about yourself. Oh, am I hearing this right? Am I dancing the right way? Does this girl think I look, you know, do I have, should I have this button unbuttoned? Or am I supposed to have this one buttoned, you know? Um, when you're dating somebody, it's the same exact thing. 
especially if you struggle with insecurity or if you struggle with getting to know people, you're nervous around people, the best thing you can do and be very fruitful for your discernment is focus completely on them. I know a guy who gets shot down. Again, he's not here tonight. Or he might never have been here. Completely anonymous guy. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, John, again, I got shot down. You know, and it's, what is it with me? And why is, why am I not attractive to women? And why, you know, but he's, and I'm like, dude, because all you're focusing on is you. And that's very perceptible to the woman on the other side of the table from you. You see? So if you want to really get to know somebody, then you have to look at them. I mean, spiritually, look at them. Know them. And really, number 10, the last one falls onto this. Most discernment paralysis... No, that was nine. Oh, yeah, you're right. Number nine, okay. You're right, thanks. Number nine. No, we get to number 10. It's my favorite. Number nine. And this is another one that might get me in trouble. Um, men, you know, we talk about love being a dynamic receptivity. Men are afraid to be dynamic, and women are afraid to be receptive. We lack it. And we lack, it's like men are trying to be women, and women are trying to be men. So men, I'll just say this. It, if there's anybody in this room tonight that you're interested in possibly marrying, it's your responsibility to ask them out on a first date. It's not the woman's responsibility to come up to you and tell you how you know, amazing you are and beg, beg you for you know, a beer after this talk. That's ridiculous. So don't be afraid to be dynamic. And women, don't be afraid to be what I would call chastely receptive at this point. Don't be afraid. Because this guy, there might be a guy in this room who you say, you know, oh, I see this guy every month. It's a Veritas Talks. And he's funny looking and totally awkward, so I'll never talk to him. Might not be true. You know, in other words, this guy could be your spouse. And you gotta... Beauty and the Beast it to figure it out, you know? <laughs> Peel back the onion a little bit, okay? You get it, right? Again, like my wife didn't find me attractive when we first met, you know? She didn't really appreciate my company. I was really annoying to her. Now we're married, it's great. Kids and everything. So allow for that possibility. And I think whereas men lack dynamism, women lack receptivity, both of us we're so afraid and we're so paralyzed that we both lack spontaneity. So we get so caught up in our habits and our routines that breaking that might be what you need to spark something. This is why it's good that you're here. It actually takes a lot of courage to come to stuff like this when you could be you know, watching television at home. And number 10, uh, this might go without saying to many of you, but one of the biggest impediments to practical discernment of marriage is distance from the Blessed Sacrament. If you want to find your spouse, you will find your spouse hidden in the wounds of Christ. One way or the other. That's where you need to be. And frankly, you don't want to find a spouse who's anywhere else other than hidden in the wounds of Christ. It's very simple. And, and why do I say that is so important? 
because that is where you're going to learn to love. And more importantly, that's where you're going to learn to be loved. Adoration is quintessentially dynamically receptive. John Vianney walks in and sees this old man in adoration. He says, what are you doing? And the old man says, I look at him, he looks at me. He's loving and he's being loved. And so in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, in a way that nothing else can do, in a way that nothing else can compare to, you will learn how to love and how to be loved. And you will learn how to heal, and you will learn how to exchange your wounds and these ruptures and this misplaced trust for his glory. Because fundamentally, that is why he's present to us in the Blessed Sacrament, as a receptacle for your wounds. Is a receptacle for your wounds. And that is the place, is, the, is really, it's the locus of transformation, is his pierced heart, Eucharistically present to you. This is where your wounds are transformed into something glorious. And this is where we become whole. This is where we're able to then go out and find somebody to marry. As whole, as the two become one flesh, not the one half and the one half become one flesh. Last thing I want to say, and this might be advice for people who are married. But you need to understand the power of a vow. So often, I've seen this happen. You've probably seen it happen. People are married for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. They have kids, two kids, and all of a sudden things are not going so well. Things are rocky. And they go to the church and they say, Father, we need help. Cry for help. I've seen this happen. And priests or whoever they're talking to, as Catholics, as we, we can all take blame for this. We just say, ah, oh, bummer. You know, let's figure out who gets the kids. Let's figure out how to make it as peaceful as possible. And nobody stops to ask them the question, did you mean your vows? Because that's the only question that matters. The vow, it, if you ever, ever read the, uh, the Odyssey, okay, you, what does is, what is, um, Odysseus do when he's coming across the sirens in the ship? Sirens are these pretty girls. They, everybody wants to follow. Everybody wants to go, you know, go to that island, but if he brings a boat and follows the pretty voices that are singing, the boat will crash into the rocks and everybody will die. So what does he do? Let me know. Huh? He takes all his crewmen and put wax in their ears so they can't actually be tempted by it. But Odysseus, because he's, uh, you know, he's a pretty awesome guy. He's like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> he's like, but tie me to the mast of my ship so I can't crash us into the rocks when I hear it, because I'm going to want to. A vow is you being tied to the mast of your ship. Because there will be, that's the point of a vow, right? There will be a day, maybe a few of them, that you'll want to break your vows. But the vow keeps you together. And vows are very powerful, and vows can be made formally, vows can be made informally, vows can be made publicly, and vows can be made privately. And we need to be very, very careful of making vows that we don't mean. I'll tell you a story that I, I, I told you this story. 
Okay, it's a funny story. You're gonna think I'm a weirdo after I tell it, but that's okay. When I was in the seventh grade, you're like, oh shoot, John, there it goes. I should have brought the couch and sit down. Okay. Uh, when I was in the seventh grade, there was this girl I was in love with. It was puppy love. Okay, but I was of the age of reason. And I said, I remember exactly where I was when I said it. I remember exactly where I said it. And I said, God, I promise you, I'm going to marry this woman. <laughs> and I meant it, like in my bones. In my bones, I meant it. Years went by, and I was I like, I was still thumping through high school, through college. You know, we both doing our separate things, and I'm like, the day will come. She will explain the world. She will be mine. Oh, yes. She will be mine. And, you know, she got married. She had kids. And at some point, I realized, well, this isn't going to work, you know? <laughs> And I went to my, and it sounds funny, but I went to my spiritual director about it, and I said, Father, what do you do about, about this? Why am I even still thinking about this? And he's like, tell me how you, you know, committed to God to do this. I walked him through exactly what I did. And he says to me, he says, oh, well, that has the character of a private vow. You need to go find a canon lawyer. A private vow. A canon lawyer. I had to find a canon lawyer. So, little John Johnson, I was, I was probably 22 at this point, 23. I went and found Father Fulmer. Uh, you remember uh, Father Fulmer at St. Mel's, God rest his soul. And, and he's like, okay, yeah, what do, you, what do you want to talk about? I told him a story. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a private vow. I'm like, shoot, <laughs> what do I do? And he says, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm telling you this. But he's like, well, here's what we need to do. I will write of your case to the Grand Penitentiary in Rome, and we will have you dispensed of your private vow. I'm like, yeah, all right, let's do it. You know? So he does it. He writes to the Grand Penitentiary in Rome. He explains my case. This is over a seventh grade, you know, crush. And... And, uh, and Father Fulmer, weeks back, weeks later, gets back to me and says, I, I heard back from Rome. John, you've been dispensed of your private vow. And no, no joke. From that moment, I was free. Now, here's where the plot, the plot thickens. Years later, I meet my wife. I met her adoration. And as soon as I met my wife, I remember it, because was, it was a professional setting. It was like this, where I'm like here for work, you know? But I met her, and I, and I was very professional. I said, oh, nice to meet you. Is this your first time here? You know, would you like to fill out my clipboard? Um, you know, to get everybody's cell phone information. And I was very professional, and I, I remember distinctly, I'll never forget it, I walked away from her, and I said, under my breath, I said, marry me. <laughs> So six months later, you know, she's very attractive. And uh, I let all the guys bounce off of her, you know, and I made, made my move. And now we're married, we got babies, it's great. But here's where the plot thickens. On our second date, we, when this group was still meeting at uh, the Kilt Pub, I brought Alexandria to sit next to me on a date. This is her public debut. <laughs> 
And guess who is freshly divorced? All dolled up. Batting her eyes. Sitting right next to my future wife. No joke. She sought me out. She found me. She knew I was always ready to go. And she, she came to this group. It was years ago, so none of you remember what she looked like. And at that moment, you would have thought it would be a difficult decision. It wasn't. I was free. I was free. The church has the power to bind and to loose. And if the power to bind, as it is publicly proclaimed, you know, is a much stronger way, right, than my silly little seventh grade vow. The marriage. Grace of states is abundant. And nothing the world can, or the flesh can, or the devil can throw in your way can in any way permeate uh, your bond. Because what is your bond rooted in? The same thing your vocation is rooted in is love. And St. Paul says that nothing can separate you from the love of God, no principality. So ultimately your vocation, whatever it may be, is an acceptance, is love. And it's an invitation and a yes to live in the simplicity of God's love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, and we need to be uh, not afraid. We need to be not afraid to say yes to love. Because even if it might be terrifying, you know, like jumping off a cliff or something, it's going to be, is anybody will tell you who's married? Anybody will tell you who's married. It's love upon love upon love upon love, and love that you can't imagine. And you make babies, and babies teach you how to love in ways that you can't even imagine. Or, frankly, let me say this. Let me say this. Suffering, suffering together is even more splendid, is even more splendid than all the little joys and all that stuff. And, and, and I think, you know, there are married couples that God calls to suffer in ways that I can't imagine. And, and this suffering, I'll leave with this quote, suffering is a glimpse of the evangelical counsels. That is, I'll say it this way, suffering in marriage is a foretaste of religious life that is heaven. St. Gregory the Great says a great discernment, if you're ever thinking marriage or religious life. He says... Marriage will always begin in joy, but end in great sorrow. Religious life will begin in sorrow and end in joy. And through sorrow, through the cross, God calls married people, any people, to the joy of heaven. And so ultimately, there's nothing sweeter this side of death than the cross of Jesus. And so your vocation, yes, it is a vocation to love, but it will be a vocation to suffer. Because to suffer is to love. And the world tells you, just like Satan tells Jesus when he's in the desert for 40 days, just like Satan tells Jesus when he's in the agony in the garden, this is too much suffering. This is too much suffering for you to do. So just don't do it and watch TV, you know, and be a 40-year-old loser uh, you know, working at Best Buy and living in you know your apartment with your three dude friends, you know whatever it is, and that's way easier. 
play a lot of video games every day, you know, like 12 hours of video games. That's way easier than all this suffering and all this love. And to accept a vocation, whatever it might be, is to accept suffering. But that suffering is love, and love blossoms into eternal joy. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Sorry, Matt, I'll take uh, any questions, if we have any questions. Anybody? Yeah. Could you explain more what you mean by uh, God will give you or call you by name? Uh, yeah. Because I was talking Yeah. Good. So when I say, and I think when John Paul II says God will call you by name, this is not necessarily in any sort of supernatural locution. You will not necessarily hear a voice. But you will hear, you know, and I say this as a guy who's never been called by name to religious life. So it's speculative. But if you pray, and you pray in silence, and you pray habitually, then God will make his, his, his will known to you um, in person. If you read the end of St. John's Gospel, there's this beautiful passage where Mary Magdalene um, appears. She, it says she stoops down to see into the darkness of the tomb. But the word John uses for see is theoria. He changes the word for see to contemplate. She contemplated. And then out of this darkness, she contemplates Christ. She thinks he's a gardener. Okay, but she sees, she sees, she sees less and less obscurely through this beautiful darkness of the tomb. But then Jesus does something that changes the game for her. He says, Mary. He calls her by name. And then she says, Rabboni. She says, teacher. She identifies him. He identifies her. Even though things aren't still entirely clear, you know, he still says, don't cling to me. I must go to my father. But she sees through the darkness. This is, and, then, and then theory is the key word. There's a, there's a contemplative gaze through which he calls her name. By name. By name. Even though things aren't entirely clear to her. So, prayer. Yeah. That kind of answer, Please. I would say um, part of the two is it's to have that initial interest in a religious life and to enter somewhere and do something. And then ultimately it's your superior, or if you're headed towards a priesthood, the bishop, who calls you by name. Right? That, that's so absolutely true. That's you, why you release yourself to that. The call could absolutely come through your superior. Now, and, and also, I would say, pay attention to what uh, Teresa of Avila says, you know, and even Teresa of Lisieux to her sister. Her sister wanted, was thinking about entering religious life, but just didn't feel like it. And Teresa's like, just do it. It doesn't matter what you feel like. And, and there's a lot of wisdom to that. You know, you're, and this is why, you know, there's a book, I'll, I'm going to give you the name of a book that you can read all this great stuff in. I kind of drew from it tonight. But it's called Paths of Love by Joseph Bolin, B-O-L-I-N. It's a book everybody should read. And what he does is basically synthesize the schools of discernment from St. Thomas Aquinas, from St. Ignatius, and then St. John Paul II. And he shows their compatibility, but he also shows their difference. So there's a little bit of a difference, I think, between St. Ignatius's mode of discernment, which really is... Um, 
internal feeling based. That's a very crude way of saying it. And it's very helpful, right? Discerning spirits, consolation, desolation. But there's also wisdom in the objective approach that St. Thomas takes. That's why I talked about it tonight, because I think it's kind of under, uh, miss, uh, lacking, it's lacking fame. That is, religious life is objectively better. So if you don't have a good reason not to, give it a shot. And if your superiors tell you it's not for you, then you're free. Or if your superiors tell you that it is for you, then you're free. Okay, but once you enter, the burden is off of you. And even if you don't feel like it, do it. Any other questions? Yeah? Yeah. Great question. So engagement, and then there's a rite of betrothal, which a lot of Catholics don't know about. But if you ever get engaged, become betrothed. It's a beautiful liturgical rite. The re- the wisdom behind this is that a, a woman is under the custody of her father. I assume you know there's all kinds of different scenarios. Some people don't have living fathers, etc. But just speaking generally, a woman is under the custody of her father until what? Until the father gives her away. Uh, to somebody else's custody. Engagement, or in some senses betrothal, is the promise to someday assume custody of that man's daughter. So that's why I say, at the point of engagement, the relationship becomes committed. That obviously wouldn't give uh, a man rights to a woman's body, or household, or or, uh, a dowry, if you want to get old school. Okay, any other questions? Yeah. It would or would it? Wouldn't. Okay. Marriage, well, marriage alone would do that. Yeah. yeah. But it's a pro- at that point, you could say it's committed because the man's promised to take you off your dad's hands. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Okay, last thing I'll say is that um, it's never too late to find your vocation, to accept your vocation, and God's going to call you when you're ready to accept it. Von Balthasar takes the approach, which I kind of disagree with, that if you marry somebody you're not supposed to, if you're, or if you're called to be a priest and you get married, then your kids are going to be deformed and all this stuff. And it's not very helpful, right? Especially because having a deformed kid could be a very sure way to heaven for a lot of people. So there's, there is this mentality that floats around even this group, right? That says, ah, oh, I'm too old. You know, or ah, oh, that ship sailed. Or ah, oh, she was the one, and then that didn't work out, so now I'm just going to be you know, an old maid or an old man just waiting to quote Inception, an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone. (laughs) Don't be that. Don't be that because at every moment until your last breath, God will be calling you to love him. God will be calling you to himself. And your yes to that invitation is a vocation actualized and nothing will be more beautiful for you. Okay? Let's pray together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving God, we give you great thanks for calling us together tonight. We ask that your Holy Spirit be sent upon us to give us courage and clarity and discernment. We ask you to free us from anything that keeps us from discovering your will or following your will. And remove it, Lord. Give us clarity and and purity of heart that we might see you. And we ask um, especially that you teach us, help us in your school of love, help us to heal 
from our wounds that keep us from trusting completely that you will are good. Lord, it is your cross that makes all things new. And so we give you permission to make us new that we might be free to worship you, free to love you, free to love. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Joseph, protector of Our Lady, pray for us. St. Agnes, patroness of the engaged, pray for us. All the holy men and women of God, pray for us. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, great. See you guys next month. Thank you for coming out. Drink beer. It's plenty. Plenty here. Thank you. Veritas is sponsored by St. Joseph Morello Parish in Granite Bay, California, and St. Mel Parish in Fair Oaks, California. Our podcast features recordings of live talks delivered to young adults packed into the best pub in California, Monk's Cellar. If you're age 18 through 39 and find yourself in the Sacramento area, join us at a live event. Learn more at catholicveritas.com.